What do root words have to do with plant neglect? How do you come up with good names for a race? What is a the? Why is aloe vera good for world building? And why is the rum always gone? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. Hello there. I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast, because you can't build a planet without a plan. In this podcast, we, your hosts, explore settings in genre fiction by crafting them here and now for you, our listeners. Last time we began discussing the races of Xanthuru with the mysterious earth shells and the proud and mighty Onirek. And uh, now we're going to take a look at some of the other native inhabitants of the great continent of Alterin. Yay. Yeah, guys, like green things. Green things? Yeah, like, you know, plants. Hmm. I like plants. Plants are fun. I mean, it's not easy being green. <laughs> yeah, but we're not talking about frogs. We're talking about plants. And what would happen if plants became peoples? Sentient plants. We're not talking about those weird studies that like, oh, hey, yeah, you know, vegetables know when they're being eaten. Or the one episode of Mythbusters where they beat up a ficus tree. Hey, that ficus had it coming. Or the uh, when when uh, when you cut plants, they scream, apparently, according to some. Yeah, I mean, lobsters scream when you put them in boiling water. That is very true. I have a lot of experience with this. You guys were really weird tonight. It's got that certain kind of energy that says this is the first recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So so we're talking about plants. So I, I know a lot about plants, a lot more than I really want to know about plants. Um, if we haven't mentioned it before... Uh, I am a student of wildlife ecology, so I really enjoy animals. Um, but I, my, my love for plants is, is very small, but it is growing. Um, the more I learn about something, the more I like it. So I like plants, but I tend to kill them when I keep them. Rest in peace, John Lemon. I have one plant that I purchased in February this year, and it is now May the end of May, and it's still alive. I am shocked. Although, I don't think that plant neglect is what we're here to talk about today, so... <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Uh, we're going to be looking after this uh, bit of rambling at uh, one of the other native species of the continent, a uh, sentient race of plant people known as, collectively as the Baralanx. Which, uh, in and of itself, has something of a, I guess you could call it a casting system. They are very biologically diverse for being technically considered one people. And I say that because you will generally see one of three drastically different types, uh, even within the same family. And that are the, that are the, I know words. In the depths of the... In the depths of thee. What is a thee? 
But yes, uh, so we have one individual people with, bare minimum, three different uh, subclassifications, so to speak, uh, which include the Dendris, which are more akin to your stock standard fantasy ent-like creatures, uh, pretty much what would happen if a tree grew arms and legs. So, so they're like the woody plants, okay. Yes, the, the, the woody ears. <laughs> Very, very, very tall, very bark-like skin, even though it doesn't necessarily have to be like the very rough kind of oaky bark that you might associate with usual ent-like. It could be the more smooth, uh, not going to tear your hands apart, or if you're a certain kiwi we know, get stuff studded in your feet from trying to climb a palm tree. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, so, so first of all, before we get it too far, too much further into it i really like their name um as part of the college that i'm in is the as the forestry college um dendrology is the study of trees which it's it just it's a really good name i'll just say that that's thank you i tried literally I actually put effort into this. <laughs> I put effort so, into a lot of things, but this particularly. Yeah. Well, so one of the one of the things that I guess we can we can chat a little bit about um is like when you do name something, it it's kind of important to get it to get it right. Like it has to sound right, it has to feel right. And in this case, it's both. Yeah, names are an important thing for thing for Thing for things, yes. Important thing for things. Let's let's be fair. If you took the, again, the stock standard, the two main, well, I guess not main, but the two most widely known Tolkien races of the dwarves and the elves, and you flipped their names, what do you think would happen? Probably nothing. Yeah, well, it would sound weird. I think it, it would sound <laughs> it would sound weird because we're used to them being dwarves and elves but aside from the word dwarf being used as a descriptor for a lot of species meaning a small thing like i'm sure you've seen a lot of dwarf species monica in your studies um and tolkien's elves being tall like nothing would really like there would that would just be a bit of an idiosyncrasy i mean there's cultures that call what we would consider elves they call them dwarves but if you were to if he were to have written the books and the race that he ended up naming the dwarves, if he had originally named it elves, that would just be what they were called and it wouldn't make a difference. True. Well, thank you for trampling all over my point. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my point was when you come to a certain level of connectivity between the term for something and the way something actually is or the way you expect it to be, it becomes that much more important for the name to make sense, so to speak. So I didn't necessarily trample over your point because the point I was making was if he had written it that way from the beginning. But like Monica said, if you were to try and switch them now, it would sound weird as heck. Right. So so like if Tolkien were to have written Dwarves and Elves the way he did, and then another person 50 60 years later decides oh i'm gonna switch them around they're gonna be opposite uh 
we would all be reading that going, nope, never mind. I'm done. I'm done with reading this. <laughs> like, like they're just, they just would, it wouldn't be right. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that's more or less what I was getting at. Like, yeah. So I was just going off into nowheresville with a completely separate point, which happens. It, it's fine. We're here. We're here for discourse after all. Exactly. Conversation. Anyways, please continue. Yeah. Names are important. Sorry, sorry, I took us on this tangent. Um. <laughs> it's fine. <sighs> All right, so Dendris, they're like trees. I like it. Like trees. Uh, less so than if, again, if you were to just have a tree grow arms and legs, they do have a more humanoid shape and don't have, you know, literal canopies growing out of their heads. Um, they do have distinct foliage so to speak but it is more along the lines of uh stereotypical human hair and across the shoulders and back sort of situation instead of hey look at my canopy (laughs) good luck getting a hat to fit on that we're not doing like the super tall 90s hair but made of moss (laughs) (laughs) i was actually just wondering how how that would uh affect I mean, obviously, since this is not Earth, um, but but how ambulatory trees on Earth would be affected by the symbiotic relationships they have with fungi. So that's that's where my brain went. Um, that's okay, though, because <laughs> this is how you arrive to some developments when you're making things, is how would this actually work when you know things like, well, you know, trees and fungi, they play together sometimes. Yeah, they help each other most of the time. Yeah, and that's an important thing to consider when you're building a world and writing the stories that go in it is you, as a writer, want to do your research. But I, as a writer, am never going to know as much about wildlife biology than Monica does because that is not my field of study. And it would be... Not that studying is a waste of time, but it would not be an efficient use of my time when I'm trying to write a book or a world for a game to be set in to try and get myself to her level of knowledge. Instead, I can ask Monica as one of my dear trusted alpha readers, as she actually is for the stuff I write, as a biologist, what is your take on this? Yeah, exactly. And that's 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 one of the things, too, is you don't want to... I mean... Not that you always have to go and find the expert on that that particular subject and go, hey, this what what do you think of this? Um, what do? <laughs> what do? Um, <laughs> but but getting outside opinions is is actually really important. Um, it's it's one of those things where you're not always going to c- like catch the same things that your readers are going to catch. Um, and not to mention, you never know what's going to be important to your readers. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, like Josh naming the Dendris what he did. He obviously did his research to come up with that root word. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> and it made Monica super excited because she knows what that is. Yeah. You've you've created a connection there between yourself as the creator and the person who's experiencing and participating in the work. And considering 
the way storytelling works. It's all about making a connection. Exactly. Well, and you wouldn't, not, not everybody is going to get that name. Not everybody's going to understand like, oh, that, that root word has things to do with trees because dendrology is the study of trees. Like there's no, not everybody's going to know that right off the bat. They're also not required to. Exactly. But they'll still hear that word and be like, that's a cool sounding word. And that's important too. Like, I mean, and it fits. And I think that's, um, it fits both from a technical perspective and just from a language perspective. Like it just, it flows, it fits. So exactly. I actually do have uh, advice for that. Say them out loud, come up with names, say them out loud. If you can't say them out loud, you got to change the name. (laughs) Unless that is the point in which case give them an alternate name that your characters would speak in the world see our previous episode considering the earth shells yes exactly exactly exactly. um but getting getting back to what we were discussing before we had talked about moss and stuff like that is that something that you thought of josh when you were designing them do they have any sort of like do they carry moss on them is it like a fashion thing for them or is it just kind of whatever uh, depends on the individual, because as as a whole, as you might imagine, this is the species that is obviously most in tune with the natural world, because they are a part of it, and so individual levels of attachment will vary because they are also a people, and obviously, just because they are part of the natural world doesn't mean they are all going to have the exact same level of investment. They are individuals, not a collective. Well, I guess they're still a collective. They are not Borg. Anyway. They're not a hive mind. <laughs> exactly. That was what I was getting at. So we've got the, the trees. Um, what other, what other planty, planty beings are there? Well, of course, when you establish one particular uh, casting, so to speak, it's always good to have something that contrasts it. So that you get that little bit of variety. Otherwise, what's the point of making a contrast in the first place? True. If you want to, you know, just have one thing, one and done, there's no real need to have that built-in level of variety. Mm -hmm. If it's not going to cause, you know, some level of, are we sure this is related? Mm -hmm. Is it actually a mole or is it an elephant? (laughs) (laughs) Again, call back to the previous episode. So, in contrast to the Dendrus, we have the Veneth, which are a smaller subsect of the species, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of general build, because they draw their composite material, so to speak, from things like ivy, vine structure, and so they are very long and lank and sinewy. Okay. Do they have flowers? Sometimes. Depending on individual expression and time of year. Because uh, as a general conjoining trend between the threes is the fact that they are plants, so they have a different cycle of life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Not just in terms of length, but the seasons have a much more drastic impact on plant life and some forms of animal insect life than it does on things like humans. And so that's something that needs to be considered. 
because because we build shelters to to avoid the freezing cold temperatures or you know thing we have we have technological advantage advances that we that we use to shield ourselves from those from the the really big um the big temperature changes that comes with the changing seasons air conditioning ah uh, yes <laughs> things like sunlight don't matter as much to us get hecked daylight savings time <laughs> <clears throat> Yes, well, most of us still have to wear a gallon of sunscreen, so. <sighs> <sighs> so, so okay, so some of them do, do display flowers occasionally. Sometimes thorns, depending on their temperament. All right, cool. This, this gives me more happiness, um, and I will tell you why, because... Because... I'm such a nerd. So the it's it's like we're breaking down plants into their various groups, right? So um so the the first ones are like the conifers. Well, not obviously not all of them are are conifers. Like so like evergreen trees or or trees, I guess. So those are the gymnosperms. Those guys have uh, unprotected seeds. Um, and then angiosperms can flower. Um, and I mean, the, the gymnosperms can flower as well, but it just not immediately, yeah, not as common. And it, it just immediately made me think of like gymnosperms and angiosperms. Um, basically the, the only distinction in, in our world is that gymnosperms don't have any coating on their seeds, so they don't travel as far. And angiosperms do. Um, and most of the angiosperms are what you would think of as just as flowering plants as a general rule, which is why I asked why if they have flowers. And that's okay because it makes me happy that you asked these questions because it means I didn't do research for nothing. <laughs> I, I'm validating all of your research. It's great. <laughs> you're not only validating the research, but you're, div- you're validating the intent behind the design. Mm. It's like It's like peer review, you know. Exactly. And when you put something into a world with purpose, with research and thought behind the design, and someone gets it, again, it's like that dialogue taking place. Even if you never actually talk to the person who got it, they get your message. And I hear you, fam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people aren't going to want to participate in a work or consume a work that they can't connect to. Yeah, and it's one of those things, like, even even for things like movies, we always, movies and television shows, we look for those characters that we, we identify with uh, in those worlds that we identify with. Um, and if you don't find something in a piece of writing that you can connect with even a little bit, then you're probably not going to consume very much of that, of that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like representation matters. Oh, huh, weird. Right, strange. <laughs> So yes, we have this the second second casing, very long, lanky, lean, arguably of the three of them, the less humanoid, because they lack a lot of the same level of bulk that's needed to properly emulate a humanoid form, because you would need to basically layer on more levels of sinewy, twisty, viney goodness to get the same level of a build as you would of something that is, well, made of wood. 
Right. If if it's made of bark, if it's made of wood, it's going to be a lot harder than than vines. Vines have a hard time standing up on their own. So so the the mental image I'm getting here is basically the veneth are the like if a veneth were to try and emulate a humanoid shape, they would end up like the plant version of Octodad. <laughs> yeah, basically. You're not wrong. Oh, please tell me that the controls are not that bad, though. <laughs> Thankfully not, no. <laughs> Actually, control is something they're very good at. Oh. Uh, of the three cases, the Veneth actually have a specialty. And this goes into a little bit of the culture that I designed surrounding their people as a whole, is that being a part of the natural world, they don't build villages or encampments or any kind of settlements of their own. Uh, what they do do is manipulate and coax the natural growth surrounding them into more sheltering formats. That makes sense. They have have a, a, a nice control over over the the non sentient plants. <laughs> and in this way, it's not so much a hey, you're going to do this. It's it would be rather nice of you if you could just, you know, twist yourself this way so that your canopy lines up to your brothers over here and we get this nice little arch to, you know, divert a little bit of the rainfall. Because the rain is nice. We all like the rain. Don't get me wrong. They're so polite. But too much rain is a bad thing. <laughs> well, a plant can bounce back after being underwatered, but it can't bounce back after being overwatered. So, makes sense. Also, just... So the way you describe them speaking the very long and and flowing and one sentence going into another and a little bit on the long-winded side, would you say that their their language is very flowery? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> and they seem very polite. And that is, again, another binding aspect of the species as a whole is that being both a sentient peoples and a part of the natural world is they don't put a huge level of distinction above or below themselves. Everything that lives is a living thing and should be treated with the same due level of respect. Just because they are capable of more cognizant, higher function does not mean that they are better than the trees rooted to the ground or the grass growing out of it. And just because the other species think it's a good idea to chop down trees to build their homes doesn't necessarily make them bad or evil. They're just not ideal. So it's what I wish humans were. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes me wonder if a human were to approach a, a bear lynx, like say that they were able to meet one. Joe, human farmer, is out about to chop down some trees for his farmhouse, and he comes across a family of dendris, and he were to ask them, hey, would you guys be willing to please grow a house for my family so that I don't have to cut down these trees over here? Would they be willing to do it, and is there any kind of payment they would accept for it? Uh, generally speaking, yes. Uh, the Baralanx, historically and even to modern day points, they're a very giving and generous species because everything is equal to them. There isn't a superior or an inferior species in their worldview. And so, hey, this person 
does not want to cause harm by chopping down trees. This is a great thing. We will gladly grow a home for you. Here is how you care for it. If you would like, we also have some tips on how to properly rotate your crops. That's perfect. I love it. <laughs> and that in and of itself is its own reward to them. They don't necessarily seek any form of compensation because the fact that the earth isn't being depleted of its natural resources is worth it. Which makes sense for someone so connected to that to that land and be, for them being a part of it, um, wanting to continue... Yeah, or well, to to extend the life of the of the planet they live on, um, makes sense that they would accept that as a form of payment, basically. Mm-hmm. Giving back by not taking in the first place, huh? Crazy, right? What a, what a crazy thought! Absolutely wild. And um, in that note, they also have something of a specialty of their own. There is a particular plant that grows in the forest surrounding uh, what is basically their equivalent of God, so to speak. And that is a very, 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 very old tree that they see themselves as the children of because it was here long before they were. And this plant is very strange in its properties because it has a very fibrous foliage, so to speak. Uh, the inspiration that I turned this from was the fact that you can actually pull something resembling a thread from the center of an aloe vera leaf. Fun little botanical fact. For <laughs> aloe vera isn't just good for your skin. <laughs> it's good for world building. You can also make a needle and thread in a pinch. <laughs> and so this plant, which they refer to as the verdant's hair, in reverence to their deific figure, the verdant one, all things green, the, the connectivity, the energy of the world all stems from this one place. To them, the ley lines that run across the planet are just all roots of the same base energy source. Logical. They take these fibers from this plant and they seamlessly interwork them into a special fabric that is generally referred to as Versilk. And this was done because it's important to have things that a species can call its own that is a trademark of them. We see this with, you know, the dwarves and their blacksmithing or the mithril of the elves. The ogier from Wheel of Time and their song wood. Exactly. And so I wanted to have that something that is like, oh, hey, this is something that makes the world a little more fleshed out and makes me happy. And so we have this fabric that they can create that is essentially a silk in terms of its overall feel, texture, the weight of it, how it drapes, what it can be used to create. That is also basically Kevlar. Nice. I like it. Because it, it's, it's such a resilient, uh, basically supercharged positive plant. Yeah. <laughs> which is why they associate it with their deific figure. That it makes a fabric that is essentially bulletproof. Not that there's bullets, but you get the point and the picture, hopefully. Sometimes I'm great at explaining things, sometimes I'm terrible. But this is something that they make that is essentially no more or less valuable than anything else to them, but obviously fetches a pretty high price out in the world because this is something that only they can basically make because due to the nature of their build, they are the only creature with the level of dexterity to dexterity needed to weave this stuff together. 
anybody else who tries it just kind of falls apart. Right, right. It's a, uh, it, it, it's a specialty good. And those are always fun. Maybe it's dumb of me. I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was a cool idea. I think it is a cool idea. And I think uh, it's it's nice to have those sort of art, like to think of the kinds of things that these races would try and, tr- I mean, I guess they probably wouldn't really care to trade it, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a good that other people will want. Um, and it, it forces interaction, I guess is where, is what I'm trying to get at. It, it forces interaction, but also, it is in the nature of sapient beings to want to create something. Some of the earliest forms of tool use that we see through the history of, of early Homo sapiens and the Neanderthals before them are cave paintings. We figured out how to use rocks as tools and we use them to create fire, hunt better, and draw on walls so that other people would see it. Yeah, yeah. Every human culture that has evolved on this planet has some form of history, starting with oral history, moving to written for the ones that, you know, evolved writing. There's ways of adorning our bodies. There's handicrafts. There's music. Right. And all of those things send signals to other cultures and other people, um, even within your own culture, that that it sends clear messages um, that have sort of radiated through time, if that makes any sense um but it's 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 fascinating and it would make sense that in other countries other cultures obviously like other worlds when you're building them that there will be those things that everyone kind of has a version of Mm -hmm. yeah and every every culture every race is going to have their art their their music even if you know we might not consider it music but you know, the earth shells have their vibrations in the ground that we might not even be able to hear, but they probably love. Yeah. Um, and so you have them fulfilling that need of, hey, there's this fiber, let's weave it into something. And then because they're so generous and giving, hey, these people have need of this, you know, maybe joe farmer's house burned down and his family were all freezing cold in the rain let's give them shelter and fabric to warm warm themselves you know wrap them in this the only fabric we have this verisilk yeah just because thermal regulation isn't important to one thing doesn't mean it isn't to another (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and like you said with the, the forced interaction the system of exchange you know they may not want money for it but a ruler might find out that Verisilk exists and want to either wear it themselves because vanity and status or protection from assassins or all of the above. Yep. <laughs> or put their guards in it, you know, make tabards or the surcoats that get worn under armor out of this Verisilk. So if a blade slips between the plates of their armor, they're still protected okay, so here's what I'll do. I'll section off a hundred acres of my kingdom and not allow anybody to hunt or log there. Which is a good good payment. Yeah. And your people may cultivate it as however they wish. However many of them want to come may come and 
it will be safe preserved land and in exchange whatever of this you make you know on that land just go ahead and send it my way yeah you scratch my back i'll scratch yours it's a very good way of getting things done equivalent exchange yep and it's also important to have, you know, goods that are sought after because, for example, yeah, the Baralanks might not see any value in it, but the neighboring queen sees, oh, King so-and-so has this super awesome magic fabric. I want it. Hey, what will you, what do you want in exchange for that? Yeah. And suddenly you have a high-priced luxury good that affects the entire world economy. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. Um, And not to mention, you also have this trope in fantasy fiction where, and in sci-fi too, we want to see cool equipment. We want to see magic armor and, you know, power suits and mithril and all this stuff. All the stuff that doesn't exist in real life. Well, guess what? Metal in this world is really hard to come by, at least on the continent of Altairan. If mithril exists, or the equivalent of it, since that's a copyrighted term, I'm pretty sure, we're probably not getting any of it anytime soon. So having, you know, just a cloak, just a simple fabric cloak that, oh, arrows can't pierce this. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Also, it's nice to see some love to the cloth wearers, you know. (laughs) Yeah, not everything can be full plate. No disrespect to full plate. Clang, 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 clang. Yeah, clang, you clang, can't clang, sell clang. from that, uh, as as we learned. Um, <laughs> it also makes me wonder how militaries would have evolved that have access to their silk. Would they even bother putting plate over it if you can leave a surcoat of their silk and put some padding underneath it? It would give their their soldiers a lot more range of movement. That's for sure. Range of movement, speed, mobility. Yeah. So you, I mean, yeah, they would just weigh weigh the pros and cons of that, basically. So you'd probably have whole divisions of military that wouldn't have existed on Earth. Yeah. What is a heavy infantry? <laughs> right, and like just from having this one luxury good, mm-hmm. you know, all of this uh, this ability to to draw conclusions from from this one piece of lore. And that turns the statement I made earlier kind of on its head. Maybe it's silly. I thought it was a cool idea. Clearly, from this conversation, not that silly of an idea after all. Definitely not. Well, and sometimes you just need outside verification of like, I thought of this cool thing. Is it actually cool? Turns out, yes. And that's okay, too. Now, if we want to talk about slightly silly ideas, that does bring us to the uh, the third case of the Bear Lynx. And these ones were made initially because I like things in threes. I don't know why. Three is a good number for me. It's a nice number. If anyone's into numerology and would like to tell us about about the number three, shoot us a tweet. (laughs) And so I decided I needed a third case. And I, again, wanted to bring that level of diversity, that level of, are we sure this is related? And so I started working on the Opidus, or the Opudian, as they're known. And they are on the short side. They're generally considered to be very tall if they reach four feet. And 
the only really way I can sum it up on the short for the time being is is there essentially what happens when you make a person out of a nut? <laughs> okay. Sometimes you feel like a nut. <laughs> and sometimes you don't. But in this case, we do feel like a nut. And so I made the opiates case, which are very short, very squat, very compact, very tightly bound, sinuous fibers in a hard shell that they can close around themselves like an armadillo. So it's sort of a strange fusion, I guess, biologically speaking, between a nut and like a clam. You know what they're making me think of that I forget what they're called, but that enemy in or a specific subtype of enemies in Final Fantasy X, like when it first introduces you to the abilities of different characters to take on different enemy types and they give you that really round, hard shell boy to With make really Orin kill. Wide arm panels. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that just far less sinister looking. They are my delightful round boys and girls and others because gender is a little more of a fluid thing with these guys. As it is with plants. Exactly. Yeah, you're not really ever going to have a male plant, usually, right? Uh, no, you have their male parts on plants. Um, that, that's where the pollen is produced. But, but you don't have like male, male and female plants. You just have male and female parts of plants. Yeah, more on that later. <laughs> so i made these very squat kind of somewhat comical looking not like that they are ridiculous so to speak but from an outside glance it's like what is this <laughs> so are there different are there different different kinds of nuts like are they are they like different colors and shapes and there could be variation, yes. <laughs> like I just want a little peanut and a little a little uh walnut. Um the, the walnut was the primary design. Okay, all right. <laughs> but obviously, again, we're dealing with a very interspecies biodiverse race species, interspecies biodiverse. I can yeah. words, I promise. Spoiler, we've all had a bit of a day today, so if we seem a little bit off <laughs> It's just extra entertaining for you guys, hopefully. I find us entertaining, at least. I like us. And that's all that matters, really. <laughs> Make the content you want to see in the world. I'm pretty sure Gandhi said that. Yeah, some, something like that, anyway. Yeah, on his, <laughs> on his hit YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> Gandhi Gamer. <laughs> As opposed to God Gamer. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. All right. So so not like people. So we've got we've got the trees, we've got the vines, we've got the nuts. Yep. And they're they're very good at that. Yeah. They are by and large the most defensible of their species mates. I'm not even sure what the term would be there. Maybe you know Monica. Uh, I think species mates is the the closest that I would be able to come. <laughs> they're cousins. <laughs> Yeah, basically, yeah. That was that was how I was picturing them anyway. Because, of course, with something like this kind of setup, the big thing is, if they don't feel like dealing with you, they just curl up and clamp down, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> uh, the, the, the little bit of in-world flavor that I decided upon early on with this decision was that these guys are, and I'm using the guy term colloquially, I don't mean... Again, male specifically. 
uh, they are so strong despite their short stature that if they are curled up and defending themselves, it's actually considered a worthy feat to be able to pull it open by a gnome. That's pretty strong. So they, they can add that to their name. <laughs> that makes me happy. Right. That's, that's really good. That means that a version of, of the ballet, the Nutcracker, could actually exist. Oh, the glasses have come off. There is, there is much laughter over here. <laughs> I love it. But it's not all fun and games and giggles with these guys. Because within the interior of their shells... They are actually very capable at fostering the growth of things like pollen and fungi, which they can use either offensively, defensively, medicinally to suit whatever need they have at the moment, thanks to the natural mystical capacity of the planet itself. Hey, this guy's bothering me and he's almost got my shell open. Pfft, sleep spores. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. So they are actually widely regarded as the quintessential healers of the entire continent. If you are sick and don't know what the cause is, if you are gravely wounded and there's one nearby, you're going to be okay because they'll take care of you. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> they might seem silly, but I love them. That's the... And that, 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 that's how you know you strike the good balance is when you, you start with a very admittedly ridiculous concept <laughs> and you just you, you, you tweak it and you nudge it and you work with it until it's like, oh, hey, these guys are actually kind of charming and comfy. I like them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think of world building as this big, epic, grand undertaking that you have to take super seriously along the lines of someone like Tolkien or Robert Jordan. But also, Brandon Sanderson, one of the masters of world building, once gave a talk at a signing I went to about the rule of awesome and how important it is to writing. You should have fun creating. Yeah, definitely. Because if you're not having fun creating, people aren't going to have fun experiencing. And if taking your world super seriously is what makes you happy and what you have fun with, go for it. But if you want to get a little bit more quirky, a little bit more whimsical, being able to laugh about an own ballet, if that's what makes you have fun, then do that. There is room for both. There's room for both. <laughs> <laughs> I broke Monica. <laughs> I'm sorry, just the idea of these, these mighty warrior guys just dancing around i mean have you seen like i mean obviously uh ballet dancers of all genders but especially the ones because of the way that the gendered choreography is in traditional ballet if you see a dancer who was assigned male at birth they are both really graceful and really powerful so an own with the actual training would probably be real heckin good at ballet <laughs> Yes, that is very true. Not to mention something my dad was always fond of pointing out is the sheer level of grace and control that people who practice ballet have. If you were to hand one a sword and tell them to speed it up a little bit, they'd be lethal. Yeah, definitely. 
and the Odorek are pretty lethal. That's they're lethal already. They don't need ballet to add to that. <laughs> now I'm just picturing them have like them having like a capoeira like fighting style, and that really is cool. Oh, I love the things that we can pull from our own world to to add into these fantasy worlds that just make them that one extra layer better. Um, yeah, because our, our real life experiences are the lens through which we view other worlds. So the more you learn about other people and other experiences, the more you get to pull from this tiny little thing and this thing over here and that thing over there and make something new out of it. Exactly. And something new that can still be connected with. And that's one of the things, obviously, we've talked about it several times, like, connect with, like, find that one little thing and make that connection with someone. And you have a whole new thing that's, I don't know, it's hard to, my brain stopped working, it's fine. Hard to articulate when you got the giggles. Yeah, it really is. There's a special kind of magic in it. Yes. It makes me very happy anyway. It's one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast. That's the, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> This sparks joy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, goodness. Okay, so we've got... So, so, they're, so they, they have a hard shell. They're very defensive, but, they, but they're really good healer, healers. Are they as polite as the other, as the other uh, Baralanx? And helpful? Well, I mean, as you might imagine, they tend to be a little more withdrawn. <laughs> they're like turtles that's a pokemon joke <laughs> a pudian use withdraw it's defense rose <laughs> not defense curl <laughs> oh no metapod used harden <laughs> <laughs> yep now i have the image that these guys are just metapods but yeah they as a whole, these people are very amicable and easy to get along with, even if their physical outward nature would suggest otherwise. Good. Just don't go around trying to kick them. Yeah, that's probably not a good idea with anyone, really. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you'd probably break a foot. Yeah, that's true. Bones are brittle. Uh... Shell, not so much. <laughs> and now... For the, the the special bonus round, ding 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 ding, <laughs> the piece de resistance. Again, slightly on the more whimsical design side, the supposed fourth caste of the Baralanx people, the Quenthern, who are believed to be the biological offshoots eh. of Baralanx individuals who migrated across the oceans surrounding Alterian to its neighboring country of Mazra which is primarily a desert. Now, I don't know how much you folks at home know about desert biomes. Standard plants do not do well there. Yeah, not really. One of the things that made it possible for plants to even leave water sources is they they had to be able to store water. Uh, <laughs> and the further away from water you get, you have to be able to store water better so you what you're saying is you have to become quenchier <laughs> the quenchiest which is for the record where part of the name for these people come from i played around with quench to deal with water and thorn because this fourth ca case 
is Cactus People. It's fantastic. These are my favorite of the of the of the four, I guess. They're my favorite. <laughs> and so we have I want you to picture Cacnea, the Pokemon. The adorable little round, big long arms, happy grin on its face, little kind of a crown deal on the top of its head. And then just kind of expand that to more full human proportions without going full creepy darkness that is Cacturn. And you have the Quenthern. A moderately sized, around average human, maybe a little taller because cacti can get very large. Kind of lanky, very round, pointy people. They make me very happy. And as one might imagine for a species that lives in the desert, they are one, very good at storing water. Two, rather warm disposition. And three, very, very good at defending themselves. Yeah? Yeah, you'd have to be. I mean... Because when you're capable of not only naturally storing your own water supply... When it is in limited supply elsewhere... And can further use the ambient magical energy inherent to the land to augment said water supply, to either improve its ability to rehydrate or even impart restorative capacity to it, that makes you a bit of a commodity whether you're a living sentient creature or not. Yeah. Thankfully, when you're a living, talking, walking cactus with access to magical powers, that means you can grow some real big thorns. <laughs> and that generally tends to make other things that would attempt to harm it get the point. Very quickly. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all night. Try the veal. <laughs> the veal can't grow thorns. Nor would we want it to. <laughs> Does this also mean that cactus juice has actual medicinal properties in Mazra? It is, in fact, the quenchiest. It'll quench <laughs> you. And these cactuses are, in fact, friendly. Oh, goodness. Oh, wait, no, excuse me. It's the mushroom cloud that's friendly. Yeah, but these maybe stay away from the mushroom cloud still, but the cacti are friendly as long as you're not a jerk to them yeah as long as you're not trying to harvest the water within um without their consent yeah just ask yeah maybe say please hi i'm dying can you help me yeah sure sure why not also can i point out that for the dendris josh did all of this research into like the root word of dendrology and all this deep dive into google and wikipedia and whatever other sources he used and then for quenthern he played around with the words quench and thorn and stuck them together and came up with two equally good names yeah i like both of those names for vast vastly different reasons yeah two completely different methods of coming up with a name and both of them produced a good result thank you so you there is there is no one right or wrong way to name your things just find what works with you play around with stuff try researching and see what it is that you can come up with see i find naming to be very very difficult um i've had whole three hour skype conversations of what what should i name this character um Yep. <laughs> Carrie can confirm. Um, I have been there. 
and we we landed on a name we picked at the beginning and it's it's sometimes really stressful for me to pick names so so i always appreciate a really good name so before we before we wrap up here with the Barrelinx, is there anything in particular that drew you to making plant people? Is there one particular idea that that sparked this, or did you just thought, "Hey, plant people would be cool"? Uh, little column A, little column B. Um, as I mentioned when we started off talking about the whole racial archetypes that I'd created for this world, or at least the pocket of it that we're focusing on at the moment because to do otherwise would be spoiler sweetie uh i wanted something that could serve the same uh worldview archetype as the more traditional elven uh takes without being the same cut and paste oh yes we are the elves we are ancient and noble and so much better than you at absolutely everything you pitiful short-lived mortal human so i thought okay what if our you know deep woodland nature revering friends were actually you know pretty chill and helpful and real nice and threw a lot of parties <laughs> tree huggers yeah kind of sort of i mean i assume that the dendrus would would hug each other so uh, i mean depending on the time of year you don't want to risk accidental pollination i don't think anybody wants to risk accidental pollination <laughs> why it's why it's important to wear protective covering and i'm only kind of joking that's actually something i considered is that during the springtime when everything is in full bloom any flowers on an individual barrelangs person is actually covered up if they don't actually want to sire any offspring (laughs) well there you go because while they may look human shaped they don't in fact have the standard stock connect port a to port b sexual organs they're plants yeah they cross pollinate the the only way the plants get to spread their pollen is through insects so you know (laughs) i guess not the only way but one of the more popular ways yes and that is actually why as i mentioned early on you can actually see any and all three of the stock standard case cases in a single family just because both parents are dendrian doesn't mean that the child that they sire is a dendrian and this drives researchers on the continent absolutely bonkers yeah it would drive me bananas if i had to study them how does this work (laughs) what do you mean it just works mendelian genetics would be just out the freaking window (laughs) but again something i considered because I wanted to make cool plant people because I like plants. Plants are indeed awesome. And again, it's, it's nice to have that, that variety. Are you okay, Monica? Yes. The things you guys don't get to see while we're recording. Because we can see each other's video, but you can't. <laughs> <sighs> And now, before we wrap up, we do have a question from our Discord, because while the Twitter and the email aren't live yet for us to be accepting questions, we did put out feelers on our Discord to try and get some questions to answer for you guys while we're recording. So this first question, um, we was 
Uh, all right, I'm not gonna lie. I I came up with this question. Um, <laughs> You're on the Discord. You're valid. I'm on the Discord, and I'm definitely a fan of the thing that I'm on. Um, so since we've been talking about fantasy race, races and trying to find new creative ways to use them, my immediate thought was to ask each of us, what is your favorite generic cliche fantasy race trait? And how would you give it a twist to make it more interesting? I will start because I've, I've been thinking about this for like weeks now. Um, so, <laughs> so my favorite uh generic fantasy race are dwarves um they're happy and they they make me they 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 just i can't really explain why i love them so much um except that they i feel like they're my kin basically <laughs> um they like to drink and they like to to make things and they're great anyway they're usually snarky af yeah, which is definitely me. Um, my favorite way to turn that into something more interesting, um, make just generic mountain-dwelling dwarves into an interesting sort of twist on it is by putting them on the ocean. So I played in a uh, Dungeons & Dragons game um, where the world had some mountains that were actually underwater. And so this race of dwarves just lived in, they, they had to become more, uh, I guess, better at engineering because when they were pulling ore out of the, out of this mountain, they had to make sure not to collapse it with water. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so they they basically created boats quicker and figured out how to, how to make things more, uh, I guess easier to to drill down into an ocean. Yeah, so like structural engineering, fluid dynamics, water pressure, those things. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get at, but those words weren't coming out of my mouth. So, and of course, finally the answer to the age-old question, why is the rum always gone? Exactly. The dwarves got to it. The dwarves drank it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, so that's my my favorite cliche fantasy race that is slightly more interesting if you just add boats just add water <laughs> yeah just add water and you have a really interesting uh take on dwarves and that 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 is really a simple yet potentially very fascinating way to add a little bit of new spice to something that you know may be a pretty standard menu offering is to just alter one key facet. Yeah, like where they live, or... I mean, most of us who are familiar with things like Dungeons & Dragons know what happens when you take elves and remove them from forests and put them underground. Yep. You get the drow, and those are very different. Ah, uh, yes. Very. Incredibly. <laughs> um, For me, I don't know if I can pick just one favorite cliche fantasy race but overall my favorite trait would be the race that is really good with magic like better than all the other races and one of the things that I really like doing with that and you'll see that more in the episodes where we talk about player created races on Xanthuru 
is treating magic as technology rather than just as magic. Um, we see that with the country that I wrote for Xanthuru when it was a forum RP. And then also with the Torun, which I created for the podcast RP. In different ways, they use magic more as a technology. That's how they interface with it. And it becomes more of a, yes, it still has the, the, some of the mystic a- aspects of it, but it also has a scientific aspect of it that you don't often see in magic. Yeah, usually there's a very stark line drawn between technology and magic. Yes, like you can't have one and the other coexisting, except it's really interesting when they do. Yeah, especially when those two fields are a Venn diagram that is a circle. Yeah. Because you have some worlds where, you know, there's a conflict of the advent of the steam engine and gunpowder alongside magic, which is, oh, that's obsolete now because only a few people can learn it. But very rarely do you see somebody studying magic as a science. Exactly. And I, I really like to play around with that. I think it's a lot of fun and we'll get to see more of that later. Indeed, indeed. Um, hmm, this is actually, this is a good question, and I like it a lot, and not just because I also like the person who made the question a lot. <laughs> it's not like she's a very near and dear friend to us or anything crazy like that. Nah. But as I pointed out, I I love taking something that is familiar something that is expected something that is known and doing something to turn it on its head to you know subvert the expectation to give you that little borderline ironic twist well and we've been seeing obviously you've done that with all of these races that we've introduced so far exactly obviously. it's like it's something that's near and dear to my heart huh weird i know it's crazy and is is to pick a favorite and how I'd turn it on its head. It is tough. Like, I really should probably put a little more thought into this before recording this episode. (laughs) Well, I can think of a very, very poignant example of one of your favorite traits. I'm I'm, I'm willing to take that bait. His name is Remy. Oh, yes. Ah. I don't think it's any strange sort of uh, shock to anyone's system who knows me in any way, shape, or form to know that I really, really, really love my robots. And I mean really, really. Anything even remotely related to robotics or artificial life forms in any way, shape, or form. Because even though technically speaking they are magically based, a golem is still a robot. It's inanimate material given animate function. And as people who are familiar with Xanthuru know, there is a particular member of the party that most people seem to be pretty fond of, who goes by the name of Remy. And he's what happens when you take an ancient war machine and give it a chance to think for itself and develop a little personality. And how that can create interesting situations and kind of catch people by surprise sometimes. Because, and this is this is getting a little philosophical, but just because you're made to do something does not mean you have to do it. 
that is the glorious thing about this free will that you and I and all other sentient creatures share is that we can choose. And when you give something that was very purposely built for very purposeful reasons and give it the option to choose for itself as to whether or not it makes use of those, you wind up with something interesting. Very interesting indeed. Yeah. I like I like the idea of taking something that was built for nothing other than killing and giving it a choice whether it wants to continue that that action or not. I mean, obviously, in this case, if it was going to continue killing, there would have been an attempt to kill him. Um, <laughs> if given the opportunity to to stop the killing and it takes it, that's that's where it starts to get interesting. And that is actually one of the reasons I'm always innately drawn to robots and, again, artificial life forms as a whole as a character archetype is when you take something so very basic as free will, choice, morality, those very human staples that we pretty much take for granted because it's something we've dealt with our entire lives and give that capacity to something that we are not familiar with or something that is close to human, it becomes a more interesting character that also more starkly highlights those capacities to begin with. Like, we expect a person to either act in the morally correct way or in their own self-interest in the case of some people, because that's just how people are. But if your computer just up and decided one day, hey, you're spending too much time on Facebook, I'm going to close this down, go do some work, you'd be caught a little <laughs> off guard, because that's not what the computer is supposed to do. I kind of wish I could tell mine to do that, though. I actually, I find that really fascinating because that's one of the things, one of the themes that 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 we as a culture for a long time have been exploring in science fiction. Um, a lot of early science fiction writing, which I'm talking like 50s, 60s, that era, uh, deals with what it means to be human. Um, and those are some of my very favorite stories of what, th this is a piece of technology that is acting in a very human way. Does that mean it's a human? Um, and trying to find other life forms that are similar to us by space exploration. Um, like, are these, are these things sentient? Do they have, do they have a free will? Um, that kind of exploration is something we've done in science fiction for, for decades. And it's good. Yes, it is. And on that fascinating note, I think that's all the time that we have today. A little bit of a long form this time around. Uh, but, I mean, what can I say? We were dealing with plants. It was brought to get a little overgrown. <laughs> and there is also the fact that we went over four distinct subspecies. I don't know if you could call them phyla or not. No. <laughs> <laughs> because... Because because of throwing Mendelian genetics out of the window, they're just the same race. They're just the same species. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mendel. <sighs> I'm not sorry. 
Oh, that was the first first time I ever felt good at probabilities. Uh. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, next time, we'll have one final uh, non-humanoid, well, non-stock standard humanoid species that I have created for this world, this this nugget of the world, rather, to go over. And it's another one I'm particularly fond of because it's another one stemming from a topic very near and dear to my heart. And that is the rather, rather pleasant, rather amicable, rather fuzzy denizens of an archipelago just south of the Altarian continent, Da Silva. In the meantime, if you would like to contact us, you can go ahead and do so by shooting us an email at worldbuilders at rhinobot.net or by tweeting us at rhinobot studios. Excuse me. We will be glad to answer any fan questions on the air, but as you might be able to tell from us stating this was recorded in May, we do record well in advance. So just be advised that it may take a while for your question to show up on the actual show itself. We did have a couple more questions show up on the Discord, but we've decided to save those for later episodes for reasons that you will understand when we get there. So look forward to that. I'm looking forward to it. But for now, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings, team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.